The reading for today is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your, your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Greetings, Redemption Arcadia, and happy equinox. Not the solstice, equinox. It is spring, so that's something. So we're going to get into the Lord's Prayer for the next four to six uh, weeks or so. But uh, before we do that, I'll tell you a little story about my father who passed away five years ago. Uh, my father was born in, in 1920. And so he grew up from the time he was nine or 10 until he went away to World War II during the Depression, experienced that, and then fought in World War II in the, in the Pacific on the uh, USS Farragut, a destroyer. He was a gunnery officer on there. Uh, fall all through World War II. And so at the end of World War II, my father had spent more than half of his life under the extreme pressure of the Depression and World War II, rationing things, even to some extent hoarding things and having to watch expenses very closely, that whole uh, deal. So he, has, he had some experience with maybe something like what we're going through now. Um, when I was in high school, though, uh, our house one night got toilet papered. And so my dad came and got me up out of bed and said, we got to go clean up the toilet paper. We got toilet papered last night, probably some of your friends. And so I said, okay. I said, hey, I've heard from my friends, though, an easy way to clean up the toilet paper is just to light the toilet paper on fire. It burns real quick. It doesn't hurt the trees. Boom, you're done cleaning up the toilet paper real quick. Easy peasy. And, and he looked at me and he said, are you crazy? We're not going to do that. And he went into the garage and got a couple of ladders out. And we spent the better part of an hour painstakingly pulling down all of this toilet paper. And then he rolled it up and put it in his bathroom and used it. So my dad, I guess, was some sort of a prophet, maybe. Where's my dad when you need him? Anyway, I, I imagine, I hope none of your kids are out doing toilet papering right now. In fact, if, if they are, come and toilet paper our house. We'd be glad to <laughs> take care of that for you. So anyway, um, let's get into the Lord's Prayer. The next several weeks... Uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer through the lens of Matthew chapter 6, so you can certainly turn there. Uh, many of you know that I am big on context. Context is a big deal uh, to me. Whatever passage or book or verse or chapter we're looking at, context is very important to me. What was the context in which this was written? Who wrote it? Who said it? Who were they writing it to? Uh, what was going on during the time? You have to be able to understand that in order to bridge the truth of the Bible into our context and then apply it properly to our context. However, I think we can all agree that our context today 
is playing just as big a role and in fact is helping us to maybe understand more deeply what is really going on in the Bible in some ways. You think about last week when we looked at the last half of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about not being anxious and suddenly how that has a much deeper and heavier application, much weightier uh, to us uh, today in our current context. And the same is true for this prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Just a little uh, uh, rhetorical context. The prayer is condensed into verses 9 through 13. Um, Beyond that, though, uh, Jesus introduces this understanding of how we're supposed to pray, and then he ends it with uh, a little bit of teaching on forgiveness. So that backs us out to verses 5 through 15, and then really, that verses, those verses 5 through 15 belong in a bigger context, verses 1 through um, 18, where Jesus is specifically talking about what people understood in his day as the three pillars of piety. And I'll get to that in just a second. But we are looking specifically at the Lord's Prayer. And I've long considered this prayer, uh, it's actually misnamed. I don't I don't know that we should be calling it the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was teaching his disciples. He's teaching you and me. This is how you're supposed to pray. I would call this the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually John chapter 17, where he sits down um, right before his crucifixion, and he prays for an entire chapter uh, of Scripture. Uh, One other thing, if you haven't already, um, chances are you have, but if you haven't already, it's a good prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, this one that we're looking at to memorize, uh, verses 9 through 13 in Matthew 6. We should also remember that this prayer that Jesus taught was taught in a context where people had very little ability to hoard the way we do. But now that hoarding gene of ours is being challenged today. And that's why I think... um, This prayer works so well for us today. When we get into the later verses of the prayer, uh, there's actually some some implied discussion about this notion of ours, this gene of ours, this uh, desire of ours to hoard things. So again, if you could, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. You can pause the recording while you're doing that. So looking at the larger context of the Lord's Prayer, verses 1 through 18, Uh, Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, and including us today, he's setting us straight on what's known as the three pillars of piety. And the three pillars of piety in their culture, in their context, for the uh, Jewish religious people was to give alms to the poor, to pray, and to fast. And these are wonderful spiritual disciplines. Today we'd call them spiritual disciplines. These are wonderful spiritual disciplines, and we should practice them. All of us should be practicing these disciplines, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. But these disciplines are often misused by people who do um, uh, do not use them to draw themselves closer to God or, as Paul would say, to live a life that is in a manner worthy of the gospel, but rather they use these disciplines to draw attention to themselves in pride and arrogance. And Jesus is teaching against this. He's teaching against this desire we have to use um, religious behavior and activity to appear superior to others, to draw attention to ourselves. It's called virtue signaling, and it's nothing short of gross. And this type of thing annoyed Jesus to no end. 
We know that he was annoyed by it because he actually uses the word hypocrite to describe people of this ilk. And that's anybody who does it. Religious people, irreligious people, pagan people, Christian people, anyone who does something good, not because it's the right thing to do, but because they believe it will make them look good to others. You might call them spiritual peacocks. We also know this, that he's annoyed with this, because he begins this section on the proper practice of piety by saying this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For if you do, your reward is now complete and you forfeit your heavenly reward. So we, when we get to the actual prayer passage, which is verses 5 through 15, Jesus has already taught in verses 1 through 4 that when we give to the poor or we help the vulnerable, we need to do it quietly with no fanfare, not drawing attention to ourselves. And after these verses, Jesus teaches the same thing about fasting in verses 16 through 18. When you do fast, don't tell anyone you're fasting or don't, don't sulk around all forlorn, you know. And somebody comes up to you and asks you because you're, you're looking so sad. What, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm really hungry. Well, have something to eat. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. I'm fasting. Jesus says you're not supposed to be doing that. Just fast and draw closer to God. There's no spiritual benefit to any of these things unless you do them humbly. And, and he's going to give a similar counsel about prayer. So here's perhaps a summary of the teaching of these three spiritual disciplines that we should be doing, but doing them humbly and quietly. Jesus would say, don't do these things to glorify yourself, but do them because God deserves all the glory. And let me just say... We need to understand obedience to God is valuable and worth doing. We at Redemption Church believe in obedience. We do. But if we're doing it for the purpose of puffing up ourselves, Jesus says that we have missed the point. Uh, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, used to say this all the time. The best place to find non-Christians who appear to be Christians is in the choir loft. One of our redemption core values, we have seven core values. One of them is we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Do what God has called you to do, but do it humbly. And here's one other way to look at it. You could ask this question. Are you obedient to God and do you practice spiritual disciplines when the only one who can see you is God? So here's what Jesus says. Let's get into the text, verse five. Here's what Jesus says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He uses that word hypocrite here. Now, what does the word hypocrite mean? It means to play act at being something that you are not. He's telling these He's telling his disciples that these religious leaders who pray to get attention are really not that religious at all. They really don't love God at all. And here's another way to say it here, specifically in this text. Hypocrisy is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. It's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. By the way, doing the wrong things for the right reasons is no better. We are to do God's work God's way. 
That's another one of redemption's core values is that we do God's work God's way as well. You see, prayer is not to puff you up, but to fill you up, to fill you up with God's wisdom and his relationship with you, the Holy Spirit and hope and perspective. Prayer is not for us to pad our status, but for us to admit our dependence. And and here's where we really need to pay attention. God is God. That means he's sovereign. He causes or allows all things. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry about that. Breathed in wrong. He causes or allows all things one way or the other. And if that's not true, then he is not God. There is not even one single maverick molecule in all the universe outside of God's sovereignty. So if that's true, and it is, let's think about the challenging situation that we're in now. We have finally lost that we are in control of anything, have we not? Have we finally lost that notion, that illusion that we're in control? We have finally realized that things in this world are a tad more fragile than we thought, right? We are now coming to grips with the reality that we cannot fix everything. In fact, in fact, Jesus leaves some things unfixed so that his glory might be seen. Remember the story of the man who was born blind and he was blind for 40 years? We're finally realizing, here you go, listen to this we're finally realizing that many of our problems that we had just a month ago, we'd really like those problems back, wouldn't we? This is a time when we realize that the church in the faith community, as Tyler James has said it, we need way more steady plotters than we do racehorses. We need way more steady plotters than racehorses. So here's a question. Are you a steady plotter? And I know. Being a steady plotter is not very glamorous. Not a lot of glory in steady plotting. I don't even like the word plotting. But that's where we need to be. And here's the biggest thing that we're learning and realizing. This is God's deal now. And we're going to have to trust and watch and wait and be patient and rely on his power and his grace. All of the power that we have as human beings right now isn't doing us any good. But that's actually not a bad place to be, to be just giving it all to God, to trust him, do what we're still called to do, but recognizing that he's in charge of the results. And Jesus ends verse five by saying, look, if you got the attention that you're, by doing this praying out loud and praying with all of this fanfare, and you got the attention that your puny little heart so desired, there's your reward and your reward is over. There will be no reward for you later in heaven. That's a stark warning for us. And then in verse six, he says this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Man, it is hard to receive praise in secret, isn't it? It's so hard. We we prefer other people seeing us get the praise, but But that's what God calls us to, praise in secret. So why does he do that? Praise from others feels so good, but it has no ultimate or eternal value. I mean, how quickly the good feelings 
of human praise always wears off. It's, it's actually ultimately worthless. The only praise worth anything is from the Holy One, the one who designed and created us, the one who saved us. Jesus is teaching us here that the internal motivation and cleanliness is way more important than the external motivation and cleanliness. Whitewashed tombs and all that. Jesus has said in other places in the Gospels, we are not defiled by what comes out of our mouths, but by what, I'm sorry, but not by what goes into our mouths, but what comes out of our mouths, because that demonstrates what's actually in our hearts. See, if we want internal righteousness, and I assume we do, if we want internal righteousness, we're going to have to give up the notion that we're also going to get outward praise. But we want both. We want both internal righteousness and outward praise. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. And the situation we're in right now, this is when our true selves will become visible to others. And then he says in verses 7 and 8, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Empty phrases and many words. He says, don't use empty phrases and many words. What, what's the interpretation there? What does that really mean? What he's actually saying is don't use mindlessness and meaninglessness. Don't be mindless and meaningless. The problem, though, for all of us, and we all get this, is that mindlessness feels good. Can I get an amen on that? I see you out there. I know you're saying amen right now. <clears throat> Let me just pause for a second and mention this. Um, for those of you old enough like me to remember this, does this feel a little bit like romper room? Do you think maybe I'm going to go get my mirror and hold it up and say, I see Brad, I see Kathy, I see Trey. Actually, he's sitting right over there. <laughs> anyway, little romper room reference. See, here we go. We love mindless stuff, especially in our busy and fast world. We've all said it before. I just need to think about nothing for a few minutes. Mindlessness. It's ultimately why we watch office reruns or Friends reruns, or Seinfeld reruns, or Downton Abbey. My apologies to Stephanie. But we also tend to infuse our prayers with mindlessness. That's what Jesus is concerned about it. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. He also says, don't pray as if there's some magical formula or methodology or incantation that will get you what you want. That's what people who have no real relationship with God do. Jesus died for you. The least we can do is pray like we mean it, like we're interested, like we're open, open to wisdom and learning and new ways of thinking about things. So we need to be focused and we need to be engaged. This is a real relationship. And, and, and here's another thing. I think this is so important. Somebody taught me this once years ago, and it was so important. When other people are praying, listen, don't drift off. Don't start thinking about how your prayer needs to top their prayer. Your prayer needs to be more pious than their prayer. Listen to their prayer. They're praying. This is good. True prayer is not technique or performance or method. It is part of a trusted relationship. It's funny. <clears throat> Jackie and I feel, we just feel weird. We feel off 
when we don't communicate with each other for a while, and by a while, I actually, I, I mean, like, if three hours goes by and we haven't texted or called each other, we feel weird. And so we're constantly connecting with each other. It should feel weird to us if we're not constantly in prayer, connected with God and praying real, vulnerable, true prayers, praying regularly and relationally. And that means that, of course, you know, uh, Paul tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? How do you pray when you're driving? I, don't, I can't close my eyes when I'm driving. Obviously, you can pray with your eyes open. You, you can pray without actually speaking out loud. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And yes, he says, God knows what we need. If, if he didn't know what we need, he's not God. But he still calls us to pray because of relationship, because of the connection we feel, the calming, the love, and, and very important, the acknowledgement of who he is and who we are. And that's what we get to in verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, that's as far as we're going to go this week. We're going to talk a little bit about verse 9. We'll do more next week, but we're going to zero in for uh, here for now three things. And first of all, this is really interesting. New Testament scholars who are well-versed in Jewish religious tradition <clears throat> explain that the form of this prayer was common practice in Jewish culture and was prayed specifically because... This type of prayer is inviting God to use his sovereignty and his reign to change the world for a better future. That's ironic, isn't it? That we would be going through this prayer that has that format in their culture right now. Isn't it true that we're really worried about our future and we want a better future than the present we're living in right now? This is one reason why this prayer is so important right now and why we're doing this series right now. Now, in one sense, that future is, is the eternal future that we have in the new Jerusalem. But right now, we'd like to see the world change for the better, wouldn't we? I mean, something that even mildly resembles a month ago. Second of all, he says, our Father. <clears throat> Pray like this. Start with our Father. Notice this prayer does not start with, hey, God, here's what I want. It doesn't start that way. It starts rather with, God, I acknowledge who you are. And by acknowledging who you are, I acknowledge who I am and my dependence upon you. And that's not just any word that is being used there for father. It's this word, Abba. And this word is indicative of a close, vulnerable, loving, and authentic relationship. It's the kind of relationship that all of us pine for. And we can have that with God. And third, here's one of the things I've noticed. It seems like you can't have an, a conversation today without somebody saying, well, what's next? What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? How many times? I've had people actually calling me, okay, so... You're the, you're the guy that reads the Bible. You're the guy that teaches the Bible. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, plagues and earthquakes and locusts. I mean, I've read that somewhere before, right? What's going to happen? What's gonna... Everybody's concerned. Non-Christians are concerned. What's going to happen? When are we going to be able to return to normal? Here's what I think is going to happen. Patience, waiting, and trust. 
Let's get used to it. Patience, waiting, and trust. Because he is our father in heaven, reigning supreme and sovereign, and his name, and his name only, is holy, honored, glorious, and powerful. We can be patient. We can sit and wait on God. We can trust him. By the way, that's what the word hallowed means. It means holy, honored, glorious, and all-powerful. Your name is not hallowed. My name is not hallowed. So the two greatest acts of faith, I believe, are acts that we need to be doing right now. First of all, we need to be praying to God. And second of all, we need to be waiting on God. We need to be patient. You know, God's been asking us as humans for decades or even centuries to press more into him, and now we really don't have much choice, do we? And it's not because he's an ogre, it's because he loves us. And here's how much Jesus does love us. In John chapter 17, Jesus is on his way to the cross in just a few minutes. And what does he do? He prays the true Lord's prayer. He prays for us. John 17 starts out, the first five verses, Jesus prays to his father and he says, I've done all you've asked and I've done it to your glory and it is your glory that matters. And then in verses six through 19, he prays this. He says, I've completed my mission for and those who are with me now, my disciples who are with me. And I'm praying for them. I'm praying for their provision and their protection. And here's the key to that prayer for his disciples. He doesn't pray that his disciples be taken out of the world and not have to face the trouble that they're going to have to face, but rather that God would walk with them in this world through the trouble. And then he gets to the last part of the prayer in John 17, where he not only prays for his disciples, But he prays for us. Listen to what uh, he says at the end of this prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the word may be believed that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, be even one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of this world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prays to his Father that his Father's mission And his mission would be completed for all who come after those that he's with. In other words, us. He's praying for us right here, right now. And it's the same prayer. Not that we're taken out of this world, but that he would sustain us through all of this. Let me pray for us as we go. Lord God, that is our prayer. Not that we would be taken out, 
but that you would be with us so that we would be a great and powerful witness for the gospel in these really challenging times. So I pray that that would happen. I pray that for Redemption Church. I pray that for our congregation. I pray that for each one of us as we are able to continue to uh, be a light, even if it's digitally, but be a light for people. Help us to proclaim your good news even in the midst of a very dark and trying time. That's what Jesus prayed for us. Let's go do it now. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.